Great. Well, as Charlie said at the start, this is very much uh, uh, a little talk aimed at those who are perhaps investigating Christian faith. So thank you, everyone. But particularly if that's you, we are just thrilled you're here. And the title, as we've said, is Why Bother with the Christian Faith? And I want to say that as I uh, grew up, uh, I want to say I thought the answer to that question was don't. Don't bother with it. I had a number of impressions of Christianity. They were all negative and they'd all have said, just don't bother turning up. The first was that it was boring. So now and again, I got taken along to church at school and, uh, and my parents, my mum took me now and again. My dad didn't really come. But I just used to sit in church when we went and count the bricks up the wall. Robert Louis Stevenson uh, said in a diary, I've been to church there and I don't feel depressed. So it just, it just was depressing. I just thought it was boring. The second issue, it wasn't so much boring, I thought it was irrelevant. So I couldn't see what relevance this book, written 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, had to me. So in order to make it relevant, as a little boy, I did love rugby, I used to leaf through it in scripture lessons. We had them once a week at my primary school, and I'd leaf through, and I'd try and find references to rugby. And I found a number I was pleased with, one to referees in John 9 verse 1. I knew a man blind from birth, well that was good. One to foul play in Acts 13, verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas were sent off. I was pleased with that. And my favourite one was to crash tackling in Acts 20, verse 24. It's better to give than receive. And that was basically the result of four years at primary school of, of Bible. I just thought it wasn't relevant. The next issue I had was I didn't think it was true. So this is, this is heretical. I can't bear it, but this is the truth. I honestly had a picture of Jesus as a sort of long-haired hippie in a nightie floating around the Holy Land. I just didn't think it was true. We used to sing at my primary school and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's pastures green. No, they didn't as far as I could work out. He never came to England. And so in my mind, I had Jesus walking on the water, the three wise men, the feeding of the, uh, of the 5,000, Winnie the Pooh and the Great Limpopo River all wrapped up together. It just, it just wasn't real. The next issue I had to not bother were the clergy I met. I mean, they all seemed so wet. And I spent my time in rugby circles trying not to be wet. So I spent my time doing things like this. <sighs> Actually, that has slightly concussed me. And I, and I didn't know many clergy that could do that. Do you know this? This is a crushable can. So I've got the most beaten up car in central London. It's a Ford Fiesta 1.1. I drive through the middle of London. I stop at the lights. Someone out there on Portland Place stops next to me in a Porsche with someone very glamorous next to them. They look across at me. I crush that on my head. And as we drive off, I've won. So this saves me about 150,000 quid. It's even better if you've got a dog collar on you. If you're dressed like a vicar, they really are amazed. But you know, it is easy to deceive people. And as I saw the Christian faith, as boring, irrelevant, untrue, I was deceived. And there was one person who made me rethink that and made me think that now, standing in front of you, talking about the person of Jesus, is the greatest privilege a human being can have. There is, I don't think there's a greater privilege, honestly, than being able to articulate uh, this about the Lord Jesus to you. So the one person who made me think about that, interestingly, was my godfather. Godfathers are meant to point you to God, and he did do that, but it was... It was a brutal way. So on the 6th of August, 1982, my godfather, that was my dad's older brother, was killed in a cliff fall. He'd moored at a small island. He had a little boat. They'd emigrated to Canada. And he'd, he'd uh, uh, been for a, a, a walk um, on this small island. And there was a tree. And he tried to climb around the tree. And he slipped. And he fell. And he died. And that was the first time I saw my father cry. 
So the phone call came into our home. I'd never really seen my father weep, and I saw my dad weep. And what I realized at that point was that in my family, death was an absolute taboo. And as the news of my godfather's death came in, we, we, we didn't know what to do with it. it you know, he died, but, but, but there, was, there was no hope. It's interesting now as a vicar, do you know, you stand at the graveside and you say these words from Psalm 103 as you're taking a funeral. You say, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. So you can flourish and it's marvelous. But the wind blows and its place remembers it no more. In other words, our lives are so short. And often in the Bible, death, when it's spoken about, there's a sense and Christian faith of waking up. And I think that day, 6th of August, 1982, I woke up to the reality of the fact that I was going to die, that we're mortal. And I realized that I didn't have an answer to two massive questions. Here they are, these two questions. Rico, do you have a philosophy of life that copes with death? And the answer was no, and nor did my beloved parents. And they were lovely, but they had no answer to that. Secondly, Rico, do you have a hope that goes beyond death? No. And do you know what? It, it filled me with distress. I was like, no, I don't, what, I don't, what is it? I know. I don't know. So that was, the, that was the, the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened, I wonder if you can see the reading we had. Is I then started asking myself, well, what's the meaning of life? What, what's life about if, if, if it's over so, so quickly? And I'd been given a Bible, a good news Bible, for confirmation, which I'd sort of gone through in the mechanics of it. And, uh, and I, I came to this passage. Can we see as we look down the one that Candice read for us? Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 3. And Solomon the man who wrote this, was a man who had the gifts and talent and money and time, this king, to look for meaning wherever he thought it might be found. And I wonder if you can see, because when I first read this, and I've no idea how I started doing that, but I came to this passage, I started reading it. It was verse 3 that really struck me. Do you see there? I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I could, I could absolutely relate to that. And Solomon, as he looks for meaning in life, and we look at this passage, he had a couple of solutions. The first thing he does is he says, I'm going to go for a pleasure-shaped life. Do you see verse 1 as we look down? I said to myself, come now, I'll treat you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. What does pleasure accomplish? So he first of all, he says, okay, if you're looking for the meaning of life, it's pleasure. And the thing to do is have a laugh. And I think that's great. It's great to have a laugh. I don't know where one would be in life if one didn't. But I took the funeral of a, a young man who'd committed suicide, and 48 hours before, he'd been the heart and soul of the party. So you can be having a laugh, and yet you can be so lonely inside. So in Proverbs chapter 14, Solomon wrote, even in laughter, the heart can ache. So he says, it's not having a laugh. I'll tell you what you do. Have a look down at the verse. Laughter, I said, is madness. What has pleasure accomplished? Verse three, this is the next solution. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. So what does that mean? It means you go out Friday night and Saturday night and you get absolutely smashed. You just, you just, you just go out and you just drink everything. But he says, my mind's still guiding me with wisdom. I think that means that four o'clock Sunday afternoon, you've got a splitting headache and you think, what was the point of that? Why did I do that? So it's not laughter and it's not drinking. The answer, do you see, if we look down is verse 8. 
Have a look at verse 8. I am as silver for myself and gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. Now, again, this is misogyny to the nth degree, so I apologize for it. But Solomon had 700 wives, and they were the most beautiful women of the generation. They were given as part of treaties. It was a dreadful thing. But he was a man who was able to take sexual pleasure to the end of the road, and yet he found the more you have, the less it satisfies. So pleasure is pleasure, but actually it doesn't last. So, so what's the next thing you did? It's not a pleasure-based life. Actually, what you have to go for is a work-based life. Pleasure isn't the answer. What you do is you work. And you see verse 4 and what he did in verse 4 as we look down. I undertook great projects. I built houses myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. So he works and he works and he works. These massive building projects. And he works and works and works. And then, can you see in verse 9, he arrives at, for many, for many, is the objective of work. Have a look at verse 9. There it is. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So he becomes the great man of his generation. He walks in the door, you'd be on your feet. Rather like Nelson Mandela in his generation. You walk in, Mandela, 18 years in prison for his people, you're on your feet. Well, there's Solomon, he's the great man. And yet he finds, despite all this work, and despite, you see, verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. So despite the fact that actually the work gave him joy, it's great to achieve things. It's great to have colleagues. It's great to get things done. And yet despite all that, there was still in verse 11 this nagging knowledge of what's the point of it all. Do you see verse 11 as we look down? Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You know, if you arrived uh, this evening and there's Dee at the door and, and I'm running around in circles outside and you say, what's that? Rather overweight middle-aged man doing running in circles and D at the door says, oh, it's Rico. He's just chasing the wind. He's our speaker tonight. And Solomon says, he says, I didn't know what the point of it was. I was doing all this work, but what ultimately is the point in this life? And so, you know, a lot of people can relate to what this is, which is the, 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 the West End cycle. Here it is. People set their goals and they achieve them and that's great and they feel euphoria, but then there's emptiness. And I've been here nearly 30 years now in the West End. And can I tell you, that's what I see again and again. Goal, achievement, euphoria, emptiness. Goal, achievement, euphoria, emptiness. It is the West End cycle. The author, Jack Higgins, who died recently, was asked, what do you know at 60 that you wished you'd known at 16? And he wrote, having sold millions of books, he, he, he answered in this interview, he said, I wished I'd known that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. So, first of all, my godfather died, and, and then I was asking in Ecclesiastes, what's the point of it? The third issue that then emerged was selfishness. Because after my godfather uh, was killed in that cliff fall, my godmother opened up his wallet and found a list of mistress's addresses. So she found that there had been a double life going on. So there was something he was portraying, but there was another life, and she was so concerned that uh, a, a, a mistress might turn up at the funeral, she decided there would be no funeral. 
So there was no funeral. She felt so betrayed. And his ashes were, were thrown over the side of his boat with a bottle of bourbon. And this was my godfather and a bit of a childhood hero for me. He had four daughters but no son. And I felt like a bit of a son to him. And suddenly he was gone. And I realized that his life was not what it should be. That there is a gap. My favorite autobiography is by Lance Armstrong, the cyclist. And he entitled his autobiography, It's Not About the Bike. And we now know, after the drug scandal broke, that it wasn't about the bike. In fact, I love the Australian lending library that after he was revealed to have taken so many drugs to help with his cycling, moved his biography from biography to fiction in the library. (laughs) But with all of us, there's a gap. And if I may say, you're never going to engage with the Christian faith authentically unless you look within and take responsibility for the gap. We're not what we should be. Now, that, what, that happened to me because in 1981, the year before I became a Christian, I kept this diary. Here it is. I'll never let any of you look at it. It's embarrassing, really, because I kept this diary because I felt I was such a great guy, I owed it to you to record my life. <laughs> so night after night, I would keep this diary. Honestly, very disciplined because I owed it to you. You needed to know about me as a 15-year-old. And, you know, it was an amazing thing keeping this diary because I just saw the gap. So I'd write, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if, if there was world peace? But I'd never lay aside the weapons of malice and sarcasm I used in my own self-defense. I'd write, wouldn't it be great if the starving were fed? But I'd ask my parents for a larger allowance. As you can see, I would eat it. I, I, I had a twin sister, a beloved twin sister. But I realized at parties, I didn't want my friends to do to my sister what I sort of wanted to do to my sister's friends. There was this gap. And years later, I read in the uh, letter to the Romans these verses where Paul the Apostle says, I don't do the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And as I kept the diary, I I saw that. And then I realized that it wasn't just me. That if you've got any sense as a teenager, you start seeing that there is something profoundly wrong with the world we're in. So 170 million people died violently in the 20th century. It was the murder century. That's a Twin Towers a day. What is wrong at international, national, communal or personal? And you look at our leaders and they can't lead themselves either. And you look around, you go, there's something wrong. What, are we, what, you know, what does one do with this? There's this gap. Uh, this was Winston Churchill and he wrote this. After the Second World War, man in this moment of his history has emerged in greater supremacy over the forces of nature than has ever been dreamed of before. He has it in his power to solve quite easily the problems of his natural existence. He's conquered the wild beasts. He's even conquered the insects and the microbe. There lies before him, if he wishes, a golden age of peace and prosperity. He has only to conquer his last and worst enemy, himself. And so I'm sitting there with this diary and I'm thinking, yeah, I, I, I can't leave myself. There's something desperately wrong. So there I was. Again, if you're a guest, welcome this evening. I'd been hit by those three issues all around the death of my godfather. He had died suddenly. What do you do with death? What's the meaning of it? it ultimately, we're here for such a short time. And then lastly, what about the selfishness that was exposed in his life and mine? Now, I have to say that at that point, I didn't think the Christian faith was the answer, but I was at a boys' school, and there was a shared communion service with a girls' school on a Friday. 
And I started going along, and the only reason I went was there was a very pretty girl, and she used to go. I never spoke to her, but I used to like watching her walk up and down the aisle to communion. I don't think she realizes I'm the re- she's the reason I'm now ordained, but anyway, there you have it. <laughs> and I'm sitting there one day uh, in this uh, 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 service, and the speaker at the front says what was without question the most influential thing said to me in 10 years at school. He said, who is this man? who in the Sermon on the Mount said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And then, as he was being murdered, cried out for the people killing him, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And I remember thinking, that's amazing. That's amazing that he did that. Because I'd I'd kept my diary, and I was so far from that. But when I looked at the person of Jesus, he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And then he did it even as he was dying. And then there was a little school Christian meeting. There were 12, 14 boys out of 600 boys. And I started going along. And I'm not kidding. It was like Jesus started walking off the pages of the Bible. It it just came alive. You know, we'd love to have you to that Christian Explored course. Mostly because we'd love you just as you open up Mark's gospel to find he walks off the pages. It's like it had my name and address in it. And then I found that he hit head on those three issues that I had found had emerged out of the, 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 the death of my godfather and smacked me in the face. So first of all, death. I found that Jesus lived and he taught. He had a band of followers. He was tried by a Roman and Jewish court. He was sentenced to die. They strung him up on a cross, and three days later, he was walking around again. And this maths teacher said to me, he said, Rico, when Jesus got through death himself, that means he can get you through. And I remember thinking, if that's true, that's the most important thing in the world. If he can get me through death. I just remember thinking, that's massive if he can get me through, because we're not here for long. That's what I'd woken up to. And so uh, uh, here's a funeral card of, of a friend of mine who died, my best mate from school, actually, who died uh, last year, last, last September. And, uh, and when I took his funeral, at the back of the church, as the funeral began, uh, I said these words uh, from uh, uh, John's Gospel, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what he's asking there is this, is, will you trust me with your death? So I knew my friend was dying, and we read through Mark's Gospel on the phone. It was during COVID. We went through it together. And I kept saying, Dan, will you trust Jesus with your death? And I remember when my mother was dying in Basingstoke Hospital, and I, I was with her, and I said good three things to her as she was dying. I said, I said goodbye, I said I love you, and then I said, I'll see you again. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, there's a day of reunion. If he got through death himself... He can get me through. And interestingly, the Bible doesn't talk just about the resurrection of Jesus. Come and look at this at Christianity Explored. It talks about the resurrection of the dead. It says that our bodies have a future, and the proof is Jesus rose from the dead. Can I tell you, that that changed just everything for me in terms of going forward. It meant everything started to matter. And and, and that leads to the the second issue, one one of meaning. 
Because, okay, what's now the meaning of life uh, uh, because Jesus has, 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 has risen? Well, here's a, another autobiography. This is a confession. It's about my length, Tolstoy, nice and tiny. But in this uh, autobiography, Tolstoy, the Russian author, says my whole life was a search for meaning. So in many ways, he was at, do we see the Ecclesiastes 2 verse 3? I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. And Tolstoy tries everything. As a young man, he says, life's about wine, women and song. So he says, I was a young soldier in Leningrad. He says, there was pleasure, but there was emptiness. So then he said, I inherited my father's estates. I became one of the wealthiest men in all Russia. But he said, despite I could do great good with my money, still there was empty. So he said, then I decided that actually the meaning of life was fame. And then he writes one of the coolest lines in literature. He writes, open brackets, so I wrote War and Peace. Like... I wrote one of the great novels and immediately it was accepted as a classic. And wherever I went, people said I was a great man. But still I was empty. So he says, in 1867, I married and I had 13 children. Open brackets. This for a period stopped me looking for the meaning of life. Can you imagine? 13 kids. But one day he's watching his little boy play and he cries out, what meaning is my life that the inevitability of death doesn't destroy? So he looked at his son, he thought, one day he'll be dust. What's the point of it all? What's the point? That sort of existential angst. And then, towards the end of his life, he meets a a, a Russian peasant on his farm. And he looks at this man, and he sees that he is different. That he is a man of joy. And when he says to this, this peasant farmer, I mean, he's the boss, he says, why are you like this? He gets told... These verses that are quoted to him, this, this farmer quotes him, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And, and Tolstoy said, I found it. I found that Jesus started to walk off the pages of scripture for me. I found that rest for my soul. And, you know, I've been a Christian, well, you know, nearly 40 years now. And, you know, I've never, I've never had a day when I haven't known the meaning. I really mean it. I, uh, following Jesus gives such profound meaning because he tells me the story I'm in. I mean, gosh, it's such a mess sometimes. But there's this wonderful sense of I'm in a story. I'll, there'll be a day of reunion. I'll see my loved ones again. And now what do I try and do is serve him. Let me try and illustrate that. It's very difficult to illustrate that, but I thought I would because you look a bit bored. So here we are. Are we ready? Okay, coming at the back. Oh, oh, and back. Chance to shine. It really is. Oh, 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 look out. Oh, very good hands. Very good hands. And back. Yep, that's good. Okay, let's go. Are we ready? Oh, Timmy, better. Ah, and back. Oh, thanks so much. I won't do the gallery. I've had a problem with the gallery in the past. Okay, let's do it without the ball. Are you ready? Ready? Are you ready? Can I tell you, if there's no ball, then, then the game loses its meaning. And for Christians, for so many here tonight, we'd say that Jesus is like the ball. Yeah, I think you might be here and you go, well, look, the rules are good and I can see they're good. But, and the rules are great. I mean, they reflect God's character. He says don't lie because he's a God of truth. He says don't commit adultery because he's faithful. I mean, I mean, the, the rules are great, but actually, Jesus is like the ball. 
It's, it's so much more exciting than that. If you just think it's rules, you're miles away. So first of all, I, 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 found that, I found there was an answer to death because he'd risen. Secondly, there was an answer to meaning because suddenly living for Jesus, suddenly the Bible comes alive, suddenly you're in this story that works. But, but the, the last issue I had was this diary. You see, as I kept this diary, I found that actually I became cornered by my conscience. But it wasn't just that. What, what started to happen, I started to see that actually the big issue here was how I treated God. So, so I was taking the gifts, fun, family, friends, falling in love, food, fitness. But it was all about me. I was right at the center. And I came to see that one day God would say to me, Rico, what did you do about my son Jesus? I mean, he was meant to be as central to your life as a ball is to a game. How have you treated him? And, and, I, and I started to see that there would be a day of judgment And it wouldn't just be about the fact that in this diary, there are numerous times when I've slapped my creator in the face and gone my own way. But more than that, it was how I treated Jesus. And I became convinced that God would say, well, did you know me? Did you get your sin forgiven? And also I came to see too that judgment's a very good thing. The Bible says this about judgment day. It says nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And I was walking along the street outside uh, the Chinese embassy earlier today, and there was a protester handing out flyers. And I picked up a flyer, and this is what it said on the back of it. So this is just today, and it's about a young man called Ren. And it says this, Ren's throat and lower abdomen were removed, and his family were not allowed to take photos of his body at the hospital. In a common practice to destroy evidence, police hastily cremated his body without his relative's consent. And there's nothing I can do about that except tell you. But I am certain that because Christ rose from the dead, one day the people that did this to this young man will be judged. And it's a very good thing. What they've done will be judged. God will say, what did you do to this boy? What did you do to him? And there is a place called hell. It's a great thing there's a judgment to come, but the trouble is it was everything in my life would be uncovered. And then I discovered that, that here I am, here's all my wrongdoing, and here is Jesus dying on the cross. And the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray, each has gone his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the wrongdoing of us all. So I suddenly came to see that when Jesus died on the cross, he died in my place for my wrongdoing. It was just the most extraordinary thing. And it was like then, and do come to Christianity Explorer to unpack this, it was as though this is another diary I got given. Because what happens, Jesus doesn't just pay for your sin, he also gives you his righteous life. So as God looks at you, gosh, this is extraordinary, he sees Jesus. So this is everything I've done wrong, and I wonder if you can see, every page is blank. Rico Tice, the memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner. So I came to see that, gosh, God sent his son... And there's a swap. He takes my sin. He gives me his perfect life. And I relate to God through Jesus, not my own wrongdoing. Can I tell you, if you get that, it is a source of overwhelming joy. Because you know, you know what you're like. And yet you're so deeply loved that God sent his son to die. Many years ago, I was playing rugby in Bristol against a club side called Ding's Crusaders. And I arrived at the Ding's ground, and I saw my opposite number. He was enormous. He was built like an outside toilet. Honestly, you look at a guy like that, and you think, 
what does his mother look like? I mean, the bloke was vast. I thought, this is going to be terrible. And as I looked across at him, I, I saw that he wasn't really warming up at all, but he, he had a number three on his back, so I knew he was opposite me. And I walked around a bit, and I found that he, I saw that he had a tiny baby boy in his arms. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe he's not playing. Maybe he's babysitting. Maybe his mother's playing. I didn't know. Just before kickoff, he handed this baby across. He walked onto the field. I kid you not, he ripped me limb from limb. Half time, he went straight back to the baby boy. No one seemed to mind. Came back on in the second half, threw me around like straw in the wind. As the final whistle went and I stuttered off, that baby boy was back in the man's arms. There was no question who the father was. There was no question who the son was. I'd like to have seen anyone lay a finger on that little boy. It would have been amusing to behold the result. Now, this is the issue. Do you not think that God loved his son Jesus as much as that man loved his little boy? Yet God sent him to die for me. For me. When I was full against God. And that means three things. Just as we close. It means three things. One is sin must be serious. My diary must be serious if Jesus has to die. Secondly, I must be loved that he should send his son to die. And thirdly, it's a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. In fact, it's not just forgiveness. Uh, It's not just forgiveness that is a gift. Hope is a gift. He says, I've sent my son to to rise from the dead so you have hope in the face of death. And I've sent him to die so that your guilt can be forgiven. And I've sent my Holy Spirit so that you can have meaning in life. And that's what we're going on about. And it's all about Jesus. So what will you do with him? If he gives hope and forgiveness and such purpose and he loves you so much to die and rise again. And that's why we're just thrilled at this church to go, Christianity is about Jesus. Please look at him. We'd love you to do that. Now, in terms of being able to do that, there is this little course, Christianity Explored, on the 17th of October. Come with your questions. We think you can jump up and down on this truth. Come and look at it. See if it's true. See what it means. We'd love you to do that. The fight night will be great. What did it, what did it mean in terms of knife crime in this city and in terms of uh, 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 Stephen Addison? Yeah, that's another knife that gets transformed. So please come with your questions. We'd love to see you. But as I close now, there just might be one or two here who say, look, Rico, I know this is true. I know it's true, but I haven't acted upon it. So here's a prayer that some may want to pray as we close. I'll say it once, and then if it's right for you, why not echo it in your own heart? Here it is. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you died on the cross so I could be forgiven my sin. Thank you that you rose again so that I could have hope in the face of death. I now turn away from all that the Bible says is wrong and ask that you would, by your spirit, come into my life as my Lord and Master. Now, lots of people have questions. Come back and ask them. But for one or two, tonight's the night to pray that. So let's do that now. Um, again, if you're not a Christian and you're not ready to pray it, we'd love to chat with you. But this prayer will be good for you to see. But for one or two, this will be the right prayer to pray tonight. Let's pray and I'll say it slowly, phrase by phrase, for you to echo it in the silence. So let's pray as we close. Here it is. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you died on the cross so that I could be forgiven my sin. Thank you that you rose again so that I could have hope in the face of death. I now turn away from all that the Bible says is wrong and ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, 
Come into my life as my Lord and Master. Amen.